0: You know what, there is no housing problem in the state of Vermont. This month. Governor Cunin doesn't acknowledge one. The state legislature doesn't acknowledge one. Therefore, there must not be a housing problem. But when you go down to Brattleboro, you find out that their rents are skyrocketing quite as quickly as they are in Burlington. When you go to trailer parks around the state of Vermont, you find that people are paying outrageous rent, that they don't have tenant protection. They're paying outrageous taxes that in fact their trailers are not a good investment compared to new housing and that's what they can afford. But it's not a crisis. And it's not a crisis because the legislature has not yet recognized it as a crisis. (laughs) In point of fact, it may well be that we in Burlington will be spending more money in one form or another in the fight for affordable housing than the entire Vermont state government will be spending. Okay, We understand that in terms of tenants' rights, we have led the fight. And we understand that in terms of housing improvement programs, we are so far ahead of the rest of the state as almost to be laughable. To be honest with you, when you go down to the legislature and you explain that, in fact, you want to fight so that people can live, low-income people, working people, can afford housing, and we want them to say in our community, people don't understand what you're talking about. They think that it's a good idea that wealthy people come in and squeeze out poor people and working people. In point the fact, gentrification is often seen as a positive change in a community. We must be a successful community. Our poor people can't afford to live in Burlington anymore.
1: Welcome to Unsolicited Bridge Picks. As usual, I am your host, Charles. And with me is...
2: Ray Bells!
1: ...of the Buffalo Bills fame family we've got an awesome episode for you about
2: vermont exceptionalism. No, that's not what it's about. Well, that's
1: every episode. <laughs>
2: okay, this one is about Burlington's housing history.
1: Burlington housing history and in particular we'll, we will be looking at community land trusts. And and even more particular, Champlain Housing Trust.
2: So, basically just the 1980s to now. So, oh, do we have to say the uh...
1: find us unsolicited VT Twitter. We have a Patreon. Find it. Not my job. <laughs> It's not my job to educate you, Google it.
2: You can educate us if you want. Tweet at us. If you're smarter than we are, we love to hear from people who are smarter than we are on Twitter. It's true. There are a lot of them. There are a lot of people who are smarter than we are on Twitter.
1: But it can't, it has to be in smart in a way that I care about. Like, if you know all the baseball players, I don't care, keep that to yourself. (laughs) Find a group where you can show off.
2: So, we're going to talk today about community land trusts and kind of their radical roots and their disappointing fruiting blossoms. (laughs) I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. While community land trusts were meant to defend against the onslaught of Reagan's housing, neoliberal housing agenda, unfortunately what they often ended up doing was really aiding in gentrification of the communities that they were meant to help. Mm -hmm. Uh, Champlain Housing Trust is really, I think, a perfect example of this. Uh, While they began as an organization that was meant to radically give power to tenants and...
2: Decommodify the land?
1: Yep. Challenge that for-profit housing system. Today, we see them working hand-in-hand with for-profit housing developers and landlords. And that's, I think, is because reforms don't work. They cannot work under capitalism. You cannot band-aid a system where housing is for profit, where wages have stagnated for decades, while housing costs have continued to soar. At, at most, they do help a handful of people, but to a cost to the broader community. And it's not clear if, if those costs outweigh.
2: I'm, I'm here to represent, as always, the most generous uh, way of looking at this is that they pretty terrifically failed in what they set out to do. That's mean. Even if they didn't fuck over everything else, like Charles is saying. No, I'm just kidding. Anyhow, so let's talk.
1: Um, well, well, you 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 have you have to look at them at the the frame of of uh, when they were created and why and, and
2: That's what we're gonna do.
1: Vermont has had a housing crunch for decades, if not from the fifties, the sixties. Uh, currently, Vermont's rental vacancy rate is three point four percent. Chittenden County is only 1.9%, and Burlington's is likely under 1.5%. In Vermont, 48% of renters are cost burdened, which means they are paying more than a third of their pre-taxed income to housing. This is 12th highest in the nation.
2: Yeah, and if you think about that for a second, most of you are probably like, uh, duh, because you are probably one of those.
1: According to the 2020 National Low-Income Housing Coalition, the average Vermonter needs to earn $22.78 an hour mm-hmm. to afford a two-bedroom unit in Vermont. That means if they were working minimum wage, they would have to work 85 hours a week over two full-time jobs to afford the average two-bedroom apartment.
2: Yep, that sounds that sounds right.
1: Right, in the Burlington area, one would have to earn over $30 an hour or 110 hours at a minimum wage job. That's working three jobs a week or 16 hours every day. So if you were getting paid minimum wage full time, rent would have to be $570 a month to be affordable.
2: That makes no sense.
1: The average renter in Vermont earns $13.40 an hour. Vermont has the second largest affordability gap for renters of any state in the nation. And in Burlington, 60% of renters, or 15,000 people, are rent burdened, or 15,000 people, households. Uh, paying over 30% of their income and 33% of renters, or 8,000 households, are severely rent burdened, paying more than 50% of their income to rent.
2: That money goes to your landlord, Sonny.
1: <laughs> Putting this into perspective because has the, the, the land trust worked, right? I mean, those numbers seem to suggest at best those percentages might have been a few points higher if it wasn't for the land trust. And, and lastly, 27% of homeowners uh, who have mortgages are cost burdened, mm-hmm. which is the seventh highest percentage in the nation. So what we're seeing here is for the typical worker housing, whether you are a homeowner with a mortgage or a renter, it's eating up a large part of your income.
2: And this just in, was it yesterday or the day before that an, the Burlington Free Press put out that article about uh, br- Burlington becoming a luxury housing market.
1: Oh yeah, that was like a day or two ago. Yeah,
2: so, so the good the good news is it's only going to get more expensive, guys. Just looking to the future as we're talking about the present for a minute. Climate crisis. We're gonna get lots of mm-hmm. climate refugees here in Vermont. It's it's the best place to live. I can say that because we're already, we're I love Vermont exceptionalism. We're we are already getting them, and we're also getting people here from. The pandemic. But, yep. you know, people who might be coming as refugees, especially not in the first or second wave, might be, you know, undesirables. So maybe we should start looking at affordable housing now.
1: Yeah, that's not going to happen. There's a few sides to this kind of discussion, right? We We have our neoliberals, which include Weinberger, Phil Scott, pretty much Most politicians in Vermont, the vast, vast majority, Democrat and Republican, who say that the market can solve our housing crunch if we increase vacancy rates, that we have to trust developers and we have to cut back on uh, expensive regulations. Of course, what they never mention is that developers will stop developing once they no longer make record profits and it no longer becomes worth it for them. So the idea that they would ever want to build enough housing to increase the vacancy rate would hurt their bottom line if it was meaningful. There are also those uh, who also fall into a similar category. Uh, Liberals, progressives, who say that nonprofits and housing trusts can take enough housing out of the capitalist housing market to make housing more affordable. They often will see nonprofit housing developers and landlords as being able to fill the gaps in for what the market cannot or will not supply. And they often will only rent to those who are very low income or who are homeless. And what they end up doing, whether intentional or not, is kind of creating their own uh, niche housing market. And then the last side of the discussion is us, the ones who are right, always and forever. (laughs) We see that towns, don't laugh at me. We see that towns cannot bandaid a housing market that is predicated on profit, uh, a country that has enshrined land Ownership, uh, particularly ownership of whites, that was taken uh, by force from indigenous people who lived here before us, etc., etc. Uh, we believe that only municipally owned social housing, democratically controlled, will create the sort of mixed-income housing. Well, no, I take that back. You can't. You can't. You can't reform capitalism. You can't. And I think that's what we're going to show: is that the attempts to reform housing under capitalism have been unsuccessful
2: let's talk about what was happening in the country in the 1980s when there first began to be a strong movement toward using community land trusts in vermont so with the rise of reagan our country put his ideology that the invisible hand of the market should control much of our daily lives front and center with devastating effects on the many, many Americans teetering on the verge of poverty and homelessness. In fact, you could see the invisible hand everywhere. We watched as it magically raised the rate of poverty in the the 1980s while making the supply of low-income housing disappear. When it came to his housing policies, Reagan's approach was two-pronged. Tax subsidies to help finance housing for upper-income groups and a largely unrestricted private market for lower income groups which Don't as, say it. W- don't
1: say don't it. Say <laughs> don't say what? Don't say it. Which
2: amounts to socialism for the rich and free market capitalism for the poor.
1: That's not a thing. It's not a thing.
2: <laughs> All right, well. I
1: know I know it's a quote from an article you read. I just I hate that. I hate the phrasing. It doesn't make sense. It, it's <laughs> It's not how socialism works that's ca- that is literally how capitalism works that's, that's it's it that's it is It is exactly it's that, just that, capitalism. that is
2: exactly yes but but for all the people who really really believe in this invisible hand free market bullshit when they look at how much money the government is giving to rich people they should be appalled if you're appalled by socialism and big government then why the fuck are you letting millionaires take billions of dollars in tax credits anyhow oh yeah i forgot did you did you put on your junior detective badge yes okay good i got mine too and here's a fun fact in 1988 special housing deductions we're in the middle of tax season so you guys if you're a homeowner like me you know that you get a this tax is legal deduction. advice yeah you get a tax deduction for your mortgage interest and uh your local property taxes from your taxable income so those deductions special housing deductions in two years in 1986 and 1987 cost the treasury more than 50 years of subsidized housing low income housing payments plus public housing subsidies from 1937 to 1987 costs a total of $97 billion, whereas those tax deductions in 86 and 87 alone cost the treasury, or rather the treasury lost $103 billion from housing-related tax income deductions in just those two years. So Reagan slashed HUD funding for subsidized housing assistance like Section 8, from $26.6 billion in 1980 to $7.4 billion by 1989. And in doing that, was dropping something like 100,000 families a year.
1: I, I just want to point out that Section 8 is also in and of itself still a Reagan logic.
2: Yeah, because it's vouchers.
1: It's a voucher system.
2: These policies of Reaganism were in step with a 1982 housing task force That he appointed, which was dominated by, quote, politically connected developers, landlords and bankers, not the kind of people we have making decisions in Burlington Bank. Goodness, Uh, leaving the policy up to free market has resulted in. Wait,
1: wait, 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 developers, landlords and bankers. But in Burlington, they're progressive. (laughs) So. (laughs) And under Reagan, they were conservative. But our developers, landlords and bankers. Are progressive. There's
2: more hand so, wringing. Hand wringing is very important in the exploitation of coded, workers. A lot
1: more coded language.
2: There's a lot more using racism to say that you <laughs> know, what is it called?
1: Co-opting low woke language to argue against just cause. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. Uh, leaving the policy up to free market has resulted in de facto housing policy, right? If you don't put policy in there, something's going to happen by itself, like gentrification, condo conversion, and displacement. Even if there's more need for low-income housing, the market is unresponsive to demand that isn't backed up with cash, which Charles was touching on at the top of the episode, right? Private markets Mm -hmm. don't have incentive to house the poor. Uh, The mayor of Boston at this time, pointed out that money being made by conversions was, quote, second only to the lottery in the amount of money you can make in one shot. So why are developers going to not do that?
1: Is it any surprise that in the 1980s and 90s, people all over the country began to raise the alarm that the rich were getting richer, while the poor were getting poorer?
2: Yeah, you know, it's really- And
1: while the Jewish, like myself, were getting Jewisher? <laughs>
2: The evangelicals were getting increasingly unaware of any of Jesus's practices. What? <laughs> Sorry. What? But
1: becoming more Zionists.
2: More Z- Exactly. <laughs> the Jews were getting more secular and the Christians were becoming more Zionists.
1: What, what did Bernie do? We all know Bernie was all about yeah, Bernie the tenants.
2: was go- going to change everything. Uh, yeah, we run back to the 802 and, and Bernie's first run for mayor... Affordable housing was a central campaign focus of his. As we mentioned briefly in the Boves episodes, the incumbent mayor, Gordon Paquette, had destroyed a French-Canadian neighborhood, putting urban... Italian. Italian?
1: It was Italian. There is a sign on uh, Pearl Street. There's like a placard uh, right by the bus station that says the Italian community used to be there.
2: Okay, Gordon Paquette had destroyed...
1: He he might have destroyed a different neighborhood.
2: (laughs) (laughs) An ethnic minority neighborhood... And a
1: white ethnic minority, a white
2: ethnic minority neighborhood, putting urban renewal ahead of neighborhood needs, and that also lowered supply of low income housing. And then when Dick Bove managed to siphon off one thousand one hundred twenty eight votes, it allowed Bernie to win by ten or eleven votes. Was it?
1: I think ten. Ten.
2: <laughs> ten votes. You're right. Yeah, because if eleven votes had switched, yeah. So he won by ten votes and went on to serve uh, four terms as mayor from April sixth to uh, nineteen eighty one to April fourth nineteen eighty nine, uh, which is almost the same tenure as Reagan. So it's an interesting juxtaposition there in our in our politics.
1: It is, and a lot of articles when Bernie first ran love to bring up that juxtaposition.
2: Exactly, mm-hmm.
1: they they love the idea, and that's kind of the reason why Bernie has gotten the fame he has. You
0: uh. You surprised everybody with this victory including media and not all media has been consistently attentive to you isn't that right um i think what people were saying is well gee ronald reagan is is a right-wing guy and what happened in burlington vermont and i think the answer to that is i don't believe personally that the majority of people in america believe in ronald reagan's ideology what happened was that jimmy carter failed i think that's just clear as everybody mr carter would probably admit it uh and people are looking for an alternative Mr. Reagan, with hundreds of millions of dollars behind them, with sophisticated media use, and so forth and so on, was able to say to the people, we are the alternative. Now, obviously, what we are trying to do, people like myself all around the country are saying, wait a minute, you're going to find out very soon that this guy is not the alternative. There are other alternatives. Okay. Uh, I know these are terribly complicated questions, and our time is up, but are you a capitalist? No, I'm not a capitalist.
1: While the rest of the country was supporting Reaganomics, Burlington supported it. A- socialist
2: right because if in, if reagan was the invisible hand the queen's city was sending a clear message that he could keep that invisible hand off her huge tracts of land thank you very much
1: um
2: <laughs> it's a monty python reference
1: oh okay all right
2: she's got huge tracts of land
1: <laughs> there you go you needed to do that the voice now i get it
2: okay and the hand motion uh yes anyhow so under bernie sanders the u.s saw its first municipality funded uh community land trust so let's talk about uh what community land trusts are before we share about the birth of the burlington community land trust
1: we're gonna do it through through a song (laughs) intro i'm a land trust to be yes i'm a land trust to be (laughs) And I'm hoping that they ratify me. Um,
2: yeah, so... I'm
1: a jobs (laughs) program for a lot of college-educated people. (laughs) And sometimes my housing helps a few people. Yes, I did rhyme people with people. But that doesn't matter. Now, give me an award and name a building after me. Uh,
2: alright, so... A community land trust... It's a private nonprofit corporation funded by community residents to remove land and housing from the speculative market and ensure the long-term affordability of the housing while securing the community's control over the destiny of the land, which it's, we'll get into later about very briefly about how they define community. Uh, but that's interesting, too, because uh, because mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now you could say that in the private market, there's community. Control of the land, right? If if people control the land and live there. So this American model has its roots in 1930s agrarian movements, uh, borrowing ideas from the Gram, Gram Don movement in India and the Moshevim in Israel to become a formalized model here in the states that was described... Wait,
1: wait, wait. I'm, th- I'm sorry. It, it it borrowed ideas from Israeli settlers.
2: Yeah. What? Colonialists? What?
1: Hmm. Okay. All right. Interesting.
2: (laughs) We'll just let that sit for a minute. Um, So this formalized model was described in uh, a book by Robert Swan and others in 1972 called the community, the community land trust, a new model for land tenure in America. And one of the most noticeable characteristics of this is the legal separation of a home from the land, which allows ownership to become more affordable as it removes 20 to 25% of the cost to the home buyer cuz you usually pay for the land that you your house sits on
1: mm-hmm.
2: although this also limits individual equity instead the clt aims to quote return to the whole community the value added to the land as a result of market speculation and development pressures so you know the arbitrary equity that that land builds because of speculation in the market instead of having that go into the coffers of the individual it they're saying it should go into uh, the community
1: but how, how does that go into the community? Well right like that just that just stays in the land trust
2: they they're all about perpetual affordability so if something is perpetually affordable, that's how they're keeping that money in the community that's not direct you're not paying anybody for that equity because you're not charging anybody for that. But
1: for an example, according to Champlain Housing Trust, the resale price of a home is set by a formula contained in the ground lease or the covenant. It is designed to give present homeowners a fair return on their investment while giving future homebuyers fair access to housing at an affordable
2: price. Mm -hmm. And uh, another quote here from Davis, the CLT model is clearly a form of mixed ownership. Based on the notion of social property, CLTs draw on two political traditions, the neo republican mode, in which individual ownership of housing and land is encouraged, and the neo Marxist mode, in which the interest of the commonwealth takes precedence over the individual o- ownership. Thus, CLTs give people a personal stake in the ownership of housing and a common stake in the stewardship of the land. And many of the community land trusts in this nation are true to the, the model and have pretty little variation it seems
1: i don't yeah i don't don't think a land trust could be quote-unquote successful without following that model because they still they still need loans from banks exactly yeah
2: (laughs) yeah so burlington followed that that model really closely uh the definition that we read earlier from the...
1: We wrote the damn model.
2: <laughs> the Institute for Community Economics. Well, what they did was they uh, grabbed... The, the city's housing director at the time grabbed uh, John Davis, who was a staff member with the Institute for Community Economics, as an organizer and a consultant. And he has been a fixture in Burlington Housing ever since. Uh, right, John Davis?
1: Yeah, more so in the the land trust world, but yes. Yes. Who, who was the city's it? housing director? Brenda Torpy. Brenda Torpy, who just retired from being the head of Champlain Housing Trust.
2: Mm-hmm. So, and, and here you got to love the Vermont exceptionalism. Burlington was the first municipality, as we mentioned earlier, to fund a C- CLT. And the Burlington Community Land Trust has, quote, indirectly led to the creation of about 25 new CLTs in New England in the several years following its creation. But that almost didn't happen because... Bernie, quote, did not appreciate the long-term implications, end quote, of CLTs, and Bernie wanted to help a lot of people immediately.
1: So that sounds like he did understand the long-term implications <laughs> of CLTs.
2: Uh, no, it's a, he just didn't appreciate them, they said.
1: Oh, so, oh, 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 my mistake.
2: I don't appreciate
1: ignore <laughs> Ignore the negatives. I do not uh, appreciate the long-term implications of community land trusts. Yes. I want people to be helped immediately. We live in the wealthiest country in the world, and yet we have so many people living on the street, and that is a moral shame. Okay, that's all I got.
2: All right. So according to Tim McKenzie, who was a founding land trust board member and served as head of the Burlington Community Land Trust at that time, Bernie, quote, feared the restrictions on reselling properties would create a form of second-class home ownership. If middle and upper-class people could build wealth off their houses, why should the working class be limited to shared equity? Sanders preferred rent control, which Burlington voters shot down in a referendum in 1982, and providing direct subsidies to low-income residents who wanted to buy homes. Um, But the joke was on Bernie. (laughs) Bernie. Because even fiscal conservatives felt that giving subsidies to low-income homeowners solely aided the initial recipients, mm-hmm. leaving the city to expend more resources in the future to buy more houses that would each only help one family.
1: What's great about this framing and why it is so conservative is that these are the, the, the poor families that are deserving, right? They're the ones who follow and saved every penny and did all of the sort of middle-class Uh, moral, cultural things that we expect. And so these are the deserving ones.
2: The philosophy of the movement was much more radical, even if it chose not to be in your face about it. Tim McKenzie also described some of the thinking in this way in 1986, quote, land itself was not created of any human effort. There's no equity anybody put into that land in the first place. So it's fundamentally wrong to be taking all this equity out of the land and doing it over and over again. The ultimate goal is to remove a significant portion of the land in Burlington from the speculative market forever so that the cost of the land and its increasing value will never be factored into the purchase of the shelter that's built on the land. In this way, there will also be an adequate and affordable stock of housing for Burlington's low and moderate income people without further public subsidy.
1: That, yeah, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Let's say you remove half of all housing from the speculative market. All that does is leave half of the land for the speculative market I and mean, it's just it's not all markets work if it's a speculative market it's a speculative market regardless of how large or small that market is they're trying to essentially build a, a a parallel sort of housing system the founding of uh the founding purposes of the burlington community land trust were to one increase the number of affordable homeownership opportunities for families of modest means 2 provide access to low and decent housing for low and moderate income persons and 3 promote neighborhood preservation and improvement through the responsible use and management of land it's in, it's interesting that homeownership is only for families of modest means right like it, it it's and this this was in the the 80s too where homeownership was far more accessible to the typical worker than it is today
2: but in the end fellow progressive peter claval who was the director of CEDO at the time, and Sanders treasurer Jonathan Leopold Jr. convinced him to fund the BCLT with $200,000 from a $1.9 million surplus in general city revenues.
1: And then CEDO set up the land trust as a separate nonprofit corporation. Mm -hmm. And then they bought and sold their first house shortly thereafter.
2: Yep, and that was in 1984. Then... In 1986, you know this. This, of course, was getting some national attention, and uh, it was also recognized by the UN and by HUD as having quote made a unique contribution to helping solve the housing problems faced by poor people. So, if I had a
1: dollar for every time a teacher said I made a unique contribution to the classroom, let me tell you, <laughs> that is a backhanded compliment right there. <laughs> unique. Um, oh, it's just—it's so unique, just a quirky, <laughs> a quirky little land trust idea you have here in, in little Burlington.
2: It's quaint. Um,
1: it's so cute. I can't wait to see how it grows.
2: <laughs> yeah, so while, while that was all going on in Burlington, uh, housing, of course, was a, a major concern statewide and nationwide, as we talked about earlier. And we saw the creation of the Vermont Housing and Conservation Trust Fund,
1: In the 80s, we were losing all that farmland, suburban sprawl was happening in so many exciting ways, which we've solved that now. And so part part of what the land trust was or the the trust fund was supposed to do was really help not only the farmers, but also help local residents who were being priced out Mm -hmm. for rich New Englanders with second homes because Vermont has the second highest number of second home ownership in the country.
2: Right. And a big part of that is, is because of this loophole in Act 250 that was causing all of these developers to scoop up land from farmers who were calling it. uh, James Libby said that on a daily basis, they were calling to ask whether there was any way to avoid selling to a developer. Um, How much of
1: that was probably just the Palmer Lowe's too. (laughs)
2: Um, yeah. And so following Reagan's slashing of housing funds, uh, there was, of course, vast displacement of Vermont families, notably two housing developments and 142 families in 1985, that caused more public outcry about families forced out of their homes and, sc- and school systems, partially in reaction to this root shock or the traumatic loss of one's emotional ecosystem A broad coalition was formed, including the Farm Bureau, uh, the Nature Conservancy, Affordable Housing Coalition, and the Vermont Land Trust, among many other organizations, to advocate for the Trust Fund Act, which did pass in June 1987 under Governor Coonan.
1: Favorite girl boss. Yep. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. She called this is this is but she
1: loved it, right She loved it. She was like hundred percent on board. She was
2: hundred percent. yeah, she even called uh, the affordable housing component an experiment and then she limited its portion to 25 percent of the fund. So I guess fuck affordable housing because it's experimental. It's experimental to give poor people housing, so maybe we shouldn't fund it. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe even, there was
1: like... a maybe there was a loophole though where like women who were poor were able to get the housing right because she's a feminist. So I'm, I'm, yeah. a little, I'm a little confused That definitely there.
2: wasn't, you know, the, the people who were needing affordable housing definitely weren't like single mothers or anything. Uh, nevertheless, the legislation contained a statutory priority for investment in projects that, quote, prevent the loss of subsidized housing and will be of perpetual duration. The resulting Vermont Housing and Conservation Trust Fund aimed to become synonymous with perpetual affordability and no displacement. Uh, But yeah, then following the legislation, it became a major source of project grants and operating support for uh, the Burlington Community Land Trust and for other housing and conservation land trusts throughout the state. So that definitely gave them a lot more money to leverage in terms of purchasing land and uh, gave them hope Mm -hmm. that they were going to be able to buy like 25% of land in burlington by 2004 or something like that
1: without rent control or without some sort of price controls yeah to keep the rest of the market from jumping up into these housing bubbles like it doesn't matter right like that's the part that i just keep getting so stuck on like what did they think was they thought if they just took out one fourth of the land and the other three-fourths was magically gonna follow i just the the logic is just not making uh, sense
2: i mean again we have a problem with such a tight housing market anyway right so like there just isn't enough available housing so this doesn't really sure but if dry. there if
1: there was if there was rent control then at least then the, the it would cap land value housing value whatever
2: yeah it wouldn't be so subject to the speculation of like but having a quarter of housing
1: not homes. yeah exactly
2: yeah at the at the at the end of all this this kind of exciting puppy love era of the BCLT, one of the 1980s leaders joked that it could, quote, become nothing more than a nickel and dime real estate agency if it was not successful in leveraging a lot of money in order to make a significant impact on Burlington's real estate market.
1: Not much of a joke,
2: huh? Yeah. Ha ha. That was funny in 1987 or whenever you said that. So so we look now at the end of the 80s or like 90s, right? And the beliefs that housing should not be a commodity to be bought and sold on the open market, that rather it is a bundle of rights and values that reflects a community effort. Mm -hmm. The dedication to that radical or socialist concept to promote social benefit as opposed to individual gain to reject capitalist accumulation seems to be lost in the unholy alliances that BCLT has had to make as it garners clout and plays by the rules of the capitalist game. As it manages these contradictions, low-income neighbors are still priced out. VCLT does little for low-income people other than give it a more beneficent landlord. I have to say that that part that that it does little for low-income people other than give a more beneficent landlord that was not me. That was Soifer. Oh, that wasn't you. Soifer said that.
1: Oh, oh, I thought you wrote that.
2: Because, because again, low-income people were not able to buy. And Libby also pointed out that as nonprofits start building affordable housing, they enter this familiar category in the legal services world. They become landlords. End quote. And at the end of the day, they still have to pay the mortgage and the taxes, and they still have to enforce tenant-landlord laws. So, maybe that looks like mm. the same kind of landlord-tenant relationship, and also. The same kind of uh, maybe second-class homeownership that Bernie was worried about?
1: What's interesting, in, in 2006, I believe, uh, Brenda Torpy, and it's really I really like this quote because I think it gets it so much. Uh, Folks are always trying to get rid of affordable housing, she said. We have to go out there and defend it every year. The federal funds get cut every year. Mm-hmm. Because of the size of our portfolio, though. We are much more self-sufficient. We have developed some of our own capital to take risk in the market to get properties. A lot of organizations can't compete like that. And so this was 15 years ago and already it seems pretty clear that they're already starting to act just like a for-profit developer, right? Like
2: Well, yeah, in 2006 was when they merged uh, to become Champlain Housing Trust. They merged with... The Lake Champlain Housing Trust, is that right?
1: Housing uh, a Development Court. The other thing that's, that's interesting, right, is, is there's this framework. Like, we have to go out there and defend it every year. The federal funds get cut every year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They had been saying that since the 80s. Right. Here they are just living in a world where that's the reality. That's what's been crystallized, and that's their frame. So nationally, uh, the community land trust movement has continued to grow. There are currently between 220 and 280 CLTs in the U.S., which altogether account for 15,000 homes and 20,000 or so rental units. So when we're talking about the the impact that CLTs have made nationally, it is incredibly minimal. Mm -hmm. 35,000 homes is not uh, a lot in a country of 300 million plus people.
2: 15,000 people are rent-burdened, just in Burlington.
1: Uh, In in, uh, W.J. Conroy's book, Bernie Sanders and the Limits of Reform, he has a quote that I think really gets at the heart of it. In Burlington, as in most other cities, the poor will be displaced in direct proportion to the amount of private investment. So as long as Burlington has national and international capital coming to invest, People will continue to be displaced.
2: But Charles, the the CLT model is trying to prevent that kind of private investment. So how can you use that as a point, a counterpoint to mm. the positive impacts of CHT in our community?
1: Yeah, that is a great point. Um, I, and I will get to that in just a moment. Chris Donnelly of CHT has said that they have become something of a thought leader in the field as the largest community land trust in America hmm. that they get calls from out of state at least once a week and the leaders of the trust recently consulted with folks in east london and brussels so we're we're, we're seeing i i think as european countries are moving towards this neoliberalism you know they're a little bit behind us we're better than them they uh, they are trying the same exact things that we have tried for decades now locally What has the impact of community land trusts been? John Davis believes or believed that the land trusts can be a national model, that it's not abstract, that it's something that works on the ground in a real community. And to a degree, that is true, right? In in their 2020 report, Champlain Housing Trust Mm -hmm. said they had $172 million in assets, that a third of their revenue is in rent collection. That throughout Chittenden, Franklin, and Grand Isle counties, they manage 2,300 apartments and steward 620 owner occupied homes. About half of these are located in Burlington, which means uh, roughly they own about 7.6% of the housing stock in Burlington. And while nonprofits, overall, nonprofit housing developers and landlords own 20 to 25% of all housing in Burlington. So while the land trust might not have met their own goal, these other nonprofits were able to really help them all meet that goal.
2: Reach that 25%, yeah.
1: And by Vermont standards, the Champlain Housing Trust is a very large and powerful organization and one of the largest landlords in the state. Absolutely. Uh, More than 6,000 people sleep in their properties each night, which would make it the 20th largest city in the state. And so that's like just kind of the broad, what they own where their their power is. They've got power, right? Mm-hmm. They own a lot of land, $172 million. When it comes to their whole home ownership uh, model, I I, th- I think that they're, they have not been successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that, frankly, the idea that they could ever compete, as we've said, with a for-profit home ownership model is impossible. You know, based on their own numbers between... 1984 and 2008, CHT developed 424 single-family homes and condos, modestly priced. Modestly priced during that time, while CHT's home values increased from 35,000 to 120,000, market home values increased from 100,000 to 240,000, and families uh, went from their their income went up maybe $20,000 a year during those those 20 years.
2: Well, sorry, importantly that's you sh- you should mention that it's 80% of AMI for a family of 4. Because we know again, rich are getting richer, poor getting poorer. poorer. Right. So, <laughs> so
1: It's it's those who are at 80% of the area median income in in Burlington for a family of 4, it increased from 28,000 to 48,000. And this was before really that the housing market in Burlington got super duper charged. Mm-hmm. Um So, so one of the reasons, one of the things that CHT really likes to claim is what makes their home ownership model work so well is that it helps people build equity who otherwise might not have been able to build that equity. And so according to their numbers, the average homeowner after reselling five and a half years later, recouped $12,000 in equity, Mm -hmm. right? So that's their whole thing. You're not getting the full equity. You're not getting 30,000, $50,000. You're getting twelve that, And I think that, in a lot of ways, is kind of the problem with the model. Um, so first off, 24% of those homeowners who sold ended up going back to s- renting from CHT. So uh, a quarter of them couldn't afford to be homeowners, even under this these more modest homeowning costs. Two-thirds of them went back into the, the private market.
2: So the argument is that they went back to renting because... It- because it, it was less expensive than paying a mortgage?
1: Paying a mortgage and, and being the one responsible for, for any sort of emergencies, uh, for, for fixing homes. They don't have the capital for that. They might not be able to get the loans. If a roof needs to be replaced, that's twenty thirty thousand dollars You know, it, it, CHT has the capital. They, they are able to make those improvements. They're able to get that money that they need while a, a low-income homeowner is not able to do that. So, so part of how the model works is that CHC gets the first right to rebuy that home. Mm-hmm. And they have chosen in the vast, vast majority of cases to rebuy that
2: home. When homeowners are going to be going back to renting?
1: So what they will try to do is find someone else to buy it mm-hmm. who uh, meets their income requirements. But if they're unable to find someone, they might sell it to someone who is either not income eligible, makes too much money, or they might buy it themselves and then resell it at some point down the line there's a reason two-thirds of people went back into the the private housing market and i think it's because bernie was right yeah is that you you want to get that equity there's a reason i i think one of the ideas of cht is it's supposed to build community stability particularly for low-income people but Mm -hmm. if and you have to sacrifice not ever getting that equity And when you look at the housing market, especially in Burlington, it's just going up right now. It's just been going up. The equity is your retirement. The equity is your retirement.
2: Yeah. One of the ideological um, kind of threads is the investment in the community. You're staying there. So maybe you buy that house and you stay there your whole life, right? Because you're like, so so there's that part. Like if you're not as interested in building equity. But- Right. You and I have talked about how a lot of people who either rent or buy through CHT are kind of, you know, young, young families a lot of times on their way up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so yeah, people in grad in, in school. And this kind of thing where you see somebody reselling after five and a half years on average. So, yeah, they're taking that that, that money that they get in, in selling the house and turning around and using that as a down payment to get the first class uh, home ownership. Yes.
1: Yes, and you're right. Right at the end of the day, um, ownership, home ownership, or even slightly reduced rents is not a way out of poverty. Many of the homeowners that are that buy from CHT are in temporary poverty. In one of the reports I read, the family that was buying a home, I don't know them well, but I do know of them, and like the wife now has a master's and is like a director of a nonprofit. The, the husband is making, you know, six figures uh, in a union uh, as a union organizer. And, and so the idea that I, I think it's true, whether they meant it or not, that it's like modest, quote unquote, modest homeownership, modest income homeownership is really yeah. what it's doing. It's, it's not really helping people out of poverty because it can't because homeownership is not a poverty program. We've, we've seen it time and time again uh, with the 2008 housing crash where so many low income people had subprime mortgages it, it's not a way to get out of yeah, poverty yeah
2: that's the other thing i was going to mention about this data that you were just reading is that it's through two, 2008 and so i wonder right. how relevant like what is what does that look like now after the housing crash yeah
1: yeah i don't i don't know it's a good question
2: i think it's um, and, and it, it is difficult in terms of you you can hear this in, in this discussion in this looking at these numbers there are people who benefit from this right um yeah there, there are people who who use this as a resource and they really need it. edwin and i were going to rent through cht we were going to um we were applying to to be in one of the new co-ops the bright mm. street co-op when we first moved back to vermont and edwin was unemployed for uh over nine months and i was yep. pregnant and i was earning 34 thousand a year as a teacher and um spending more than half of my income on rent so we were talking about this right my, my husband's a software engineer
1: right your your your, your poverty was a, a more temporary
2: yeah i don't even call that poverty because i grew sure. up in poverty and that shit was not yeah. poverty <laughs> that was me being like honey you gotta your, get a job
1: <laughs> sure your lower income status
2: right and that's well that's another thing that i was thinking about today like the, the discussion about low-income, middle-income, high-income is one way of just, like, fucking completely ditching any discussion of class in a meaningful way. Because your income does not tell you about your class status, necessarily. Um, no. I mean, obviously, there are relations. But, but, yeah, so, I mean, we talked about this, and I was like, you know what? You're a software engineer. As soon as you actually get a job, we're not, like, we could still be living there indefinitely because we wouldn't have to leave. If we didn't want to, mm-hmm. but we're not really the people that this, this program should be serving.
1: Which is part of, which is part of the problem with, with the program.
2: Yeah. So it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult. There are these, there are a lot of these complexities, but, uh, again, is that helping the most vulnerable people? Is that helping to eliminate poverty? Like this is not, as you're saying,
1: eliminate homelessness,
2: the thing that makes it easy to say,
1: decommodify housing.
2: Yeah maybe it it makes a difference for some families does it make a difference systemically absolutely not
1: no and and i would say that on the whole the families that it does make a difference for are ones who are already upwardly mobile or college educated right right like that's to me is the is the thing is is there are a lot of of renters from who rent from champlain housing trust and a lot of those renters who've been there for a long time are never going to be able to buy a home Mm
2: Mm-hmm. And a lot of those renters do not necessarily label CHT as a more beneficent landlord.
1: Many of them also do not do that either. Um, all of this is to say that Champlain Housing Trust is not able to and has not been able to overcome the structural hurdles of capitalism to do any of the things that they want to do right. or claim to do. And, or or.
2: And rather than go out of existence like 1930s Jewish co-ops in New York. Yep. They have, as you put it, made deals with the devil.
1: Yeah. To survive, you have to become the creature you have claimed to be against. Uh, That is a quote from Alien vs. Predator 2. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Uh, I I think the greatest example of this is essentially how the way the, the, the financing structure works. Not only are they pushed into kind of a corner where they have to rent to people who are lower income. So that limits a lot of being able to be mixed income housing. That limits kind of having a more even handed portfolio. If you if you look at cities that have a lot of social housing, like Berlin or Vienna in Austria, uh, their social housing is for all incomes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like it's it's it, it truly does function as an alternative to the housing market and is able to do that by. By being its own niche, um, it actually does compete with all levels of the housing market. CHT is unable to do that and has never really been able to do that. And and I think the best example of that is the Cambrian Rise project.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: And I want to include a a clip here. It's the Affordable Housing Coalition, the director, sitting with Eric Farrell, sitting with someone from Cathedral Square day and
0: welcome. This is a very special edition of the Vermont Affordable Housing Show, uh, and uh, we're going to feature today the Cambrian Rise development in Burlington. Uh, with me, I have some uh, very special guests. To my immediate um, right is Amy Demetrowitz, uh, who is the Director of uh, Real Estate Development at the Champlain Housing Trust, uh, Eric Farrell, President of Farrell Real Estate, Cindy Reed, who is the Director of Development for Cathedral Square Corporation, and Gil Livingston, president of the Vermont Land Trust, uh, all of whom are partners in the Cambrian Rise uh, development in Burlington at the uh, former Burlington uh, College site on North Avenue.
1: And for those who don't know Cambrian Rise, it is a project that is being built on the old Burlington College land, which before that was an orphanage. Um, the, The project itself has already required a lot of compromises even before it was built. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gil Livingston of the Vermont Land Trust worked out a deal where the city would buy 12 acres along the water, including a little beach for a public park. CHT and senior housing developer Cathedral Square would each construct one of the development's 12 buildings, providing them 146 units of affordable housing. However, part of that deal required that the inclusionary zoning units Uh, which would be 15 or 20 percent of all units, were supposed to be integrated into the building. The whole point of inclusionary zoning, one of the uh, housing protections that Bernie pushed for uh, in the 80s, along with rent control and and tenant protections and this trust fund idea and and housing uh, model, is supposed to require, essentially, that there's no sort of segregated housing units. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they worked at a deal where they're now building these segregated housing.
2: Well, and it's interesting also to, to think about, uh, you know, this idea of the community having a say, what happens with, with, its, with the land, right? But then <laughs> when actually anybody can be part of CHT if you live within that locality and pay annual dues.
1: Right. So CHT will often talk about how, right, it's a democratic organization. Um, One third of their 15-person board uh, represents the interests of the people who lease land or live in CHT housing. From what I've seen, it's almost always the homeowners, not renters. One third represents the interests of community members who do not live on land or in its housing. And one third are municipal officials and regional representatives. Right. So even in this quote-unquote democratic model only thirty three percent are in any way actually served by the land trust. On top of this, in, in two thousand eight, Champlain Housing Trust bragged about having three thousand five hundred voting members. Right. At at one of their more recent meetings in January twenty twenty, only forty nine members showed up to vote for new board members, which is about one percent, a little over one percent.
2: And who were they?
1: In the, right, exactly. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Because but, the
2: other people are like, it doesn't fucking matter anyway. It, right. It's going to be the same interests represented one way or another. And also probably don't have time for this and yada, yada, yada.
1: <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, that, that's exactly what it is. And and so by having these, these deals with the devil, you they can't. You cannot alter inherent property relations and powers relationships in the community, right? All it does is create more... Uh, conflict of interests
0: mm-hmm.
1: because cht will claim that they're on the side of low-income workers while then also turning around and, and working on these development deals with incredibly wealthy landlords
2: and again the tricky part here is for cht the survival of the organization
1: because how... that's, mat- that's what matters most at this point is, is how to survive. Right. And that is how to survive. The only way to survive is to become a developer and to keep expanding and to keep buying and to, to uh, eat up all the other developers or the ones that or sorry, the nonprofit developers or the ones that don't get eaten up. You uh, work with them directly and share resources so that you all can grow stronger. But what's, what's fascinating is one of their campaigns was by the waterfront. Uh, Champlain Housing Trust's documents from, like, 2006 or eight. Well, Burlington Community Land Trust, 2006. So, uh, wealthy people interested in changing environmental policy supported the neighborhood residents who needed the new law to improve their city blocks. The donors also gave generously to the land trust's campaigns to build community facilities, homes, and a park on these former brownfield sites. The project led to a new state law protecting developers who cleaned up polluted properties from certain liabilities, as well as opened up these city blocks to private and public investment. Hmm. Like, that is a fancy way of saying that the, the the land trust was a spear of gentrification that literally opened these spaces up. Not only protecting developers from liabilities that they should be responsible for. Uh, like what? Uh, like lead poisoning or other environmental damage and racism that occurs. Of course, the Cambrian Rise project, it came out, uh, had its own sort of shady backroom deals, not just within foreign in private developers working together. Uh, mm-hmm. But a New York Times article in 2019 pointed out that Joel Miller, one of the trustees, was part of the consortium that bought the land from Burlington College. So he was one of the trustees. He said there were other board members that were investing, but added that he was not at liberty to say which ones. The news surprised Ives Bradley, a commercial realtor who works for Pomerlo who also has his own conflict of interests, but that's a whole other issue there, right? Who was the last board chairman. I didn't know that Joel had a piece of this deal, he said. And so you just see the incestuousness of, of these relationships just building and and building and that's what you get from it right you get a project that gentrifies more neighborhoods displaces more people creates more segregation and ends up uh putting even more pressure on housing prices
2: right and i think that's a good place for that quote highlighting the urban blight that was happening in the old north end in the 1980s conroy says quote Active efforts by local community organizations may have stemmed the tide of decay, but it is gentrification that is eliminating the old North End's urban blight. So it it ends up being like these community organizations, they have these radical roots, they've got all of these great intentions. They still have great intentions in theory, right? But what ends up happening is you're, you're advancing gentrification, and so this is the other the other part that you and I have talked about quite a bit, just in kind of preparing for this, is is that when this movement was starting in the eighties, it was coming up really hard against opposition from people who don't want to cede that power. Like land reform is the place where most revolutions start, right? And um,
1: and it's usually the place when the USA chooses to send the CIA in. To- <laughs> overthrow
2: right and so if they're staying true to those values the capitalist system the the ruling class hegemony that this was was challenging has not changed
1: not only has it not changed i would it's say It's tightened its grip it's tightened its grip every single person um l- looking at the legacy of these housing reforms and we're going to talk about it in, in a later episode, another part to our, our housing look. But almost all of these folks are now part of the system. Right. They're, they're the director for the Affordable Housing Coalition. They're the head of CHT. They're uh, the head of the Community Land Trust. Uh, they're the he- or the Vermont Land Trust. They're the, the X, Y, or Z. Like they've, they've become the heads of these nonprofits that are embedded in the system. Right. They're not they're not the ones they're not the ones pushing for a new tenants union. Right. They're not the ones pushing for rent control. And often they're on the other side of of those fights now.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it shouldn't be that that these they're working tension free hand in hand with these other private developers or people who are representing those interests. There should be a lot of tension. Maybe you have to strike deals. But there should be a lot of tension. It should not be seamless. If you are still working to challenge the idea that land should not be a commodity,
1: mm-hmm. and 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 there should be a lot more grassroots people involved. If if right. if it wasn't just people, you know, wealthy, powerful people in back rooms, you know, I think I I think of Peter Clavel as the perfect example of this. Yeah, right. A, a man who, when he was mayor, talked about how we had to decommodify housing and that was the only way things were going to get better, is, is a landlord now. He, he, he owns a, a three or four unit building on King Street. It's the classic situation, where, as your material interests change and your power changes, you, you unfortunately sell out a lot of your ideals.
2: And there's also this idea, the idea of maybe we have to work within the system, but at least CHT is a more benevolent landlord. When you start seeding that, then it's easier for you to make that step and say like, oh, I, I, it's just four units. I can be a benevolent, beneficent landlord.
1: In 2015 or 16, uh, Champlain Housing Trust organized the Building Homes Together campaign, which was meant to leverage funds using public-private partnerships to build 3,500 homes by 2021 for people of all incomes including 700 affordable homes, whatever that means.
2: And so, like, one of the things with public-private partnerships in housing, it's a concession that the private market will not, on its own, as we mentioned earlier, will not build affordable housing because there isn't enough profit. And if we actually see that housing is a basic human right, we should not leave basic human rights up to the private market. But... We also can't leave those apparently up to you know the government or like public funding. So we've got to do these these partnerships. They're savvy.
1: They are. It, it's it's very very savvy. But it, here's just a list of some of the people who are supporting this campaign. Right, Champlain Housing Trust, Cathedral Square. We've got the nonprofits, <laughs> the Burlington Business Association.
2: Oh, BBA. Ugh.
1: Cots, the AARP, SD Ireland. Uh, Eric Farrell, Redstone, the Lake Champlain Regional Chamber of Commerce, Mayor Weinberger, TD Bank, uh, a bunch of other banks. Like, going back to what you're saying, Gabrielle, who was on Reagan's committee?
2: Wait, let me think. Uh, That was developers? Yeah. Was it realtors and bankers?
1: Yep, and yep. Oh. By the latest tally. The National Community Land Trust Network's membership only covers 25,000 rental units, which is smaller than the number of traditional public housing apartments in the entire Chicago Housing Authority controlled at its peak. While this model is supposedly growing and is helping some families, it, it's uh, so small, even by traditional public housing standards. The impact it has had across the nation is minimal. It is not a threat to capital, it is not a threat to for-profit housing. And in fact, as we have seen, it often works side and side with those. In 2006, the Burlington Community Land Trust had grown in both size and influence and had to balance the growth and influence that they were gaining with grassroots accountability, their philosophy, that housing should be viewed as a basic right, not a privilege, and that land should be seen as a community resource rather than a source of profit, with making economic and development deals. According to their activists at the time, there were three key ways that it balanced itself. By institutionalizing democracy, by hewing to what they call visionary pragmatism, and by encouraging healthy continued discussion and debate even disagreement among its leaders.
2: Yeah, it sounds like some leftist shit, right?
1: Right. But the problem is, none of those three things exist anymore within the organization as it has become heavily institutionalized and hyper-professionalized.
2: I mean, fuck having debate or even disagreement among its leaders they won't even debate or disagree with private <laughs> the, developers right
1: with the people they're supposed to be competing with right
2: like, we're not even competing with that they're supposed to be ideologically in contrast with yeah so here's a bit of is of a conundrum like you might be a purist and say like oh well but if they had stuck to their guns then then maybe it would have been able to do more and you wouldn't be saying that they're that they've just kind of failed because they've had these unholy alliances or maybe they would have gone out of
1: existence that was part one of our multi-part series on housing
2: thanks for listening as always yeah please 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 we love getting into conversations on yeah if
1: you think we're stupid let us know
2: yeah and depending on who is on twitter at that moment we will tell you to fuck off or ask you to tell us more about why you think we're stupid share this podcast with your friends and your loved ones and your not loved ones because they probably need to hear it too
1: yeah and send this uh, send this to your landlord